something's wrong. My friends, something is wrong. Say that something is wrong in the framework of our secular world. On, on Sunday, May 15th, a 68-year-old man drove a few hours from Las Vegas to a church in Southern California where he shot six elderly people, killing one during a church luncheon. And the shooter first mingled with the church members during their lunch. It was a luncheon planned to welcome a pastor home. And the shooter chained the doors, superglued the locks, placed a variety of devices around the church with intent to, quote, executing cold blood as many people in that room as possible. And that's just one story of many pertaining to gun violence that I could grab from the headlines in recent weeks. Something's wrong. But that's sometimes easy to point to is this evil out there. Uh, last year in the New York Times, a writer named Adam Grant wrote an article where he described what he called the, quote, dominant emotion of 2021. And here's how he described it in his article. He says, it wasn't burnout. We still had energy. It wasn't depression. We didn't feel hopeless. We just felt somewhat joyless and aimless. And it turns out there's a name for that. It's called languishing. He goes on. He says, in psychology, we think about mental health on a spectrum from depression to flourishing. Flourishing is the peak of well-being. You have a strong sense of meaning, mastery, and mattering to others. Depression is the valley of ill-being. You feel despondent, drained, and worthless. Languishing is the neglected middle child of mental health. It's the void between depression and flourishing, the absence of well-being. He goes on. He says, when this happens, you don't have symptoms of mental illness, but you're not the picture of mental health either. You're not functioning at full capacity. Languishing dulls your motivation, disrupts your ability to focus, and triples the odds that you'll cut back at work, cut back on work. Part of the danger is that when you're languishing, you might not notice the dulling of delight or the dwindling of drive. You don't catch yourself slipping slowly into solitude. You're indifferent to your indifference. Languishing. Something is wrong. In The Atlantic, a different author, his name is Jonathan Haidt, he received a ton of attention for his recent article, including Amazon founder Jeff Bezos, who retweeted his article and called it thoughtful, beautifully written, and important. Here's the title of his very popular article. His article was called, Why the Past Ten Years of American Life Have Been Uniquely Stupid. And he's not a believer, and in his article, he talks about social media and our online life. He compared it to the Tower of Babel. Again, he's not a believer, but he used the imagery of the Tower of Babel to try and describe what's been happening in our country, and he highlights the fragmentation of everything, especially our institutions and what he calls structural stupidity. 
his quote, he, he said, from 2009 to 2012, Facebook and Twitter passed out roughly one billion dart guns globally, and we've been shooting one another ever since. Something's wrong. And it's amazing in some ways because those in the secular world are beginning to name and notice that something's wrong. So we have divisive politics and rising depression, soaring, what he calls languishing, fragmentation, dark gun battles online, war on the international horizon, rising anxiety due to inflation, that you feel every time you step to the gas pump. Really, using most metrics that you want to choose, we're not well. But it's not just the secular world that's going haywire. Because, quote, religion is having its own crisis, too. So a few weeks ago, the largest denomination in the United States is the Southern Baptist Convention. They released their guidepost report, which was an independent investigation hired into looking after questions of sexual abuse since the year 2000. What did they find as they began to do their investigation? They found incidents of sexual abuse and warnings that went back to the 1960s. This is the summary of one news outlet. It said, in all, the guidepost report found accusations leveled against people at all levels, church volunteers, staff, and leadership, including those at the top of the church's ladder. Those accusations were made by people of different ages and genders, and they include allegations of child sexual abuse, the grooming of adolescents, and the sexual assault of adults. On Netflix right now, you can watch a popular documentary chronicling the accusations against Hillsong churches and their church leaders. One of the most popular podcasts of 2021 was The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill. Right now, it's very popular to talk about this idea that people are deconstructing their faith. Have you heard of deconstruction? Maybe you're experiencing deconstruction? People in America in high numbers are not going back to church after COVID. And according to Barna's research, 42% of pastors, did I put this quote up here? Maybe I didn't. 42% of pastors have given, this is quote, have given real serious consideration to quitting being in full-time ministry within the last year. 42% of pastors, and that's up from the year before where 28% of pastors said they were thinking about quitting full-time ministry. You like all the good news tonight, right? But something's wrong. And perhaps there's a poet named Langston Hughes. Perhaps Langston Hughes expressed it best for us in his poem, Tired. This was written in 1930, but it very well could have been written this year. He says, I am so tired of waiting, aren't you, for the world to become good and beautiful and kind. Let us take a knife and cut the world in two and see what worms are eating at the rind. People have grown tire, tired waiting for good and beautiful and kind. But there's this sense, even among those with no religious framework, 
that we long for this. Something's wrong. Something's going on inside of us, in our society, in our culture, in our institutions, in religion, in churches, and out. There's this longing and desire for the world to be good and beautiful and kind. So if you have a Bible, why don't you open up to the New Testament book of Galatians. Galatians chapter 5. And I offer you this. This is Galatians 5, verse 22. Paul writes in Galatians 5, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. So I'm here to tell you tonight, this is an intro sermon, by the way, I'm here to tell you tonight that we're going to spend the next probably two months or so exploring the fruit of the Spirit. This is going to be our summer series. But I'll be candid with you, even as soon as I named that for myself and for the preaching team, I tried to back out of it. Because I I said, we're going to do the fruit of the Spirit. But I was like, the more I got into it, I'm like, Can't we find something else that maybe has a little more pop to it? Something that has a little more excitement? Something a little more exhilarating than the fruit of the Spirit? My first initial response was, man, the fruit of the Spirit sounds kind of boring. Sounds kind of bland. Because when was the last time you heard someone talk about kindness, gentleness, patience? self-control like we live in a world that dismisses the remarkable the unremarkable in favor of the remarkable we live in a world that revels in the spectacular we love big things fireworks controversy kindness gets dismissed as being mr rogers pollyanna kind of things because the fruit of the Spirit seems so unspectacular. But I'm really glad we're going to do this over the next few months. Because the more that I dug in and the more I prayed and was even engaging in the text and even in our world today, I'm convinced that this is good news. This is what the world needs. This is what I need <laughs> in the midst of this world is to see the fruit of God's Spirit cultivated. It's like God actually knows that the human heart craves the good and the kind and the beautiful. If you have heard that poem before, it was newer to me in the last few months, but there's this sense of longing and desire. I've grown tired waiting for those kinds of things. And actually, the more that I talk to my neighbors and my friends family, I think there's a shared longing for this too. I'm actually more convinced that no matter who you are, sacred or secular, Christ follower or atheist, this is the kind of life that humanity is made for and longs for. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, Self-control. So who needs the fruit of the Spirit? Yes, 
The secular world needs the fruit of the Spirit. The religious world needs the fruit of the Spirit because it's actually what we've been made for. And it's something I think we're desperate to see the Spirit of God cultivate in us. So here's kind of what we're going to do. After some initial introductions for this series, we're going to spend a week at a time talking about each facet of this fruit. So it's not the fruits of the Spirit, it is the fruit of the Spirit, but there are these nine dimensions to the fruit. One fruit, many expressions. And here's how we're going to kind of tackle this with a sense of... um, Sorry, I already read those once. Go to the next slide, sorry. We're going to talk about love in a world of fear, joy in a world of discontent, peace in a world of fracture, patience in a world of instant gratification, kindness in a world of rage, goodness in a world of cruelty, gentleness in a world of hostility, faithfulness in a world of infidelity, self-control in a world of indulgence. But before we just dive in and hit the list, uh, in some ways, I feel like there's an abdor- abnormal need for some a little bit more of an introductory setting to this, because the last thing that I want to do this summer is offer you more legalism. And it could be really easy to have a series with these nine facets of the fruit of the spirit, just for it to become a checklist of behavior that we're going like, to we're going to work on this stuff. I'm going to make you more loving, and dang it, you're going to be more patient, and we're going to get you some more joy. If you just buckle down and try harder and work on your behavior, you're going to get gold stars each week, depending upon which fruit is evident, and you're like, that's not what we're going to be doing or talking about. But I think it's easy to go there. It's easy to feel like this becomes a list of behavior modification for us. But it's exactly the opposite of what Paul is trying to do as he talks about the fruit of the Spirit. This is about character, not about behavior. This is about fruit, not works. The metaphor is agricultural, not industrial, mechanical. It's about the fruit of the Spirit, not your hard work and moralism. The fruit is about what God, through his Holy Spirit, cultivates inside of you in the garden of your soul. So I want to set this up. This week, this first one is more about why are we going to spend a summer talking about this. Next week, we're going to talk a little bit more about how we should talk about the fruit of the Spirit, and then we'll spend a week on each of these things moving forward, and you'll get to hear from some of the various voices from our preaching team this summer. But I would contend that something is wrong in our secular world, and I would say that something is wrong in religion, too. And yet with this fruit, we see Jesus and his kingdom and the Holy Spirit inviting us to live in a very different kind of way. But this list of the fruit of the Spirit, they don't just appear out of nowhere. They come from somewhere. They come, they come from the text. They, come, they have context here. It comes from Galatians 5, and Galatians 5 fits within the framework. So in these last couple minutes that I have with you today, I want to share with you kind of the context of where this comes out of. So the fruit of the Spirit, again, they show up in Galatians 5. Galatians 5 is at the end of this letter that Paul has written to these churches, these believers in the area of Galatia. 
I want you to see kind of what he's addressing here. So right before he lists off the fruit of the Spirit, Paul contrasts it with a different list. So if you have this, uh, look at Galatians chapter 5, verse 19. Right before he names the fruit of the Spirit, Paul lists out what he calls the works of the flesh. And I think it provides quite the contrast. So here's verse 19. He says, Now the works of the flesh are evident, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. So Paul is writing this to real people living real lives in a real world in the region of Galatia. Anyone know where Galatia is? Anyone? Yeah, it's in Turkey. It's in modern-day Turkey. In that era, the Galatians, those living in the area of Galatia, they had been Hellenized. So they had come to adopt and adapt Greco-Roman values, all sorts of Greek and Roman ideas that shaped the way that they lived. And so Paul is saying to them, uh, this is not the way forward. This is not the good life. Just giving in to your bodily desires, doing whatever you want, living what's being called now expressive individualism where you yourself determine how you want to live. And Paul says, these are the works of the flesh, and living this way is not kingdom of God living. And there are some of the things on the list that we even be like, yeah, wow, that's, uh, yeah, that's bad, right? And then there are other things that maybe are a bit closer to our lives that we're like, oh, that's on the list too. Paul says that this kind of way is not the way forward. Licentiousness, just doing whatever pleases you, is not the good life. The way of the flesh, which I would say has been popularized in our own secular world, where you become the standard of living how you want to live, just doing you, living how you want to live, doing whatever seems good or right to you, Paul says, yeah, that's, not, that's actually the works of the flesh, and that's not the kingdom of God way. Paul makes that pretty clear. This is not the good life. Licentiousness, just doing whatever you want to, whatever you deem good, that's not the good way, the good life. But also, and actually Paul's greater warning in the book of Galatians is about legalism. So that's why I want to ground the fruit of the Spirit within the greater context of the book of Galatians because if, if there's one big theme in the book of Galatians that Paul warns against, it's that we would not be a people who put our hope and trust in our own ability to be moral and good or right or to tack on anything else in addition to the finished work of Jesus. And this is where Paul spends most of his time talking to the Galatian community. He actually rebukes them, calls them out, and, is, and, and, and uses his big words to warn them about living a life of legalism. 
You see, it's possible for well-intentioned people, well-intentioned Christians to bite off a counterfeit religiosity that stands in need of warning. Let me give you just a little Galatians flyby and then we'll end it for tonight. Paul says, yeah, the works of the flesh, that's not the good life. But neither is legalism too. So Galatians chapter 1, verse 6, right from the beginning of the letter, Paul says, I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed as we have said before so now i say again if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received let him be accursed so paul is willing to double curse anyone who tries to distort the finished work of jesus who distorts the truth of the gospel with a contradictory message. Paul says, I don't care who shows up to you. I don't care if it's an angel. I don't care who it is. No matter what they say, if they are calling you away from the grace of Jesus, the finished work of Jesus that saves, don't listen to them. They're accursed. If you have to add on to or twist or distort the message of the gospel, he says, curse. Hopping down to Galatians chapter 3, verse 1, he says, O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. So Paul's writing this letter to these dear friends this church community, and he's crying out in bewilderment. He's like, foolish Galatians. And Paul doesn't call people fools lightly. That's not his style. But he has to ask the question. He's like, what is going on in your mind and heart? Who cast a spell on you? Or the message translation, good old Eugene Peterson. He says, you crazy Galatians, did someone put a hex on you? Have you taken leave of your senses? Something crazy has happened, for it is obvious that you no longer have the crucified Jesus in clear focus in your lives. Paul's getting worked up here, not just about licentiousness or living however they want to. He's getting worked up about the legalism that is being woven into their community. So much so, hop over to Galatians chapter 5, and one of the issues that was happening is that there were people who were coming into the church telling them that you had to be circumcised to be fully saved, fully pleasing to God, following and adopting the Jewish covenant practice of circumcision for the males. And Paul gets so worked up and so fired up about these circumcision people coming into the church. He says, I wish that those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. And here's where Paul finally reaches his boiling point. And he says, they're so interested in having you cut things off, I wish they would just cut their own part off. Paul's got language for them. Because legalistic religious devotion that tacks on anything to the grace of Jesus is death to all and a direct offense against the true message of God in Jesus. 
So Paul would agree, something is wrong. It was broken then and it's broken now. But the answers to the deep questions and the longings of our soul, this attempt to find life and meaning and beauty and purpose, it's not found in the way of the world. It's not found in the way of secular culture. But it's also not found by pulling yourself up by your bootstraps, making God love you more by moralism, by behavior modification, or the like. Because Paul believes really strongly that the finished work of Jesus is enough to save you and transform you and shape you and begin the work of change from the inside out not outside in. And he desires to see the work of the Holy Spirit take hold of our lives and change us. Not just our behavior, but our motives, our wills, our emotions, our, sel our whole selves under the influence of the Holy Spirit. That kind of transformation is beautiful and compelling and good news, I think, to those in churches and to those in the greater world. And God wants to cultivate the garden of your soul. The idea of the fruit of the Spirit is a countercultural invitation to take on the character of Christ. Not to make God love you, but because he loves you, because he has given his son Jesus for you, that the work of the Spirit begins to change us. And the metaphor is agricultural. It's fruit. And we'll talk more about how that works next week. But this is what we want. This is what I want. Next slide. Love in a world of fear. There's so much fear around us. Joy in a world of discontent. Peace in a world of fracture. Patience in a world of instant gratification. Kindness in a world of rage. Goodness in a world of cruelty. Gentleness in a world of hostility. Faithfulness in a world of infidelity. Self-control in a world of indulgence. Karl Barth, in his Church Dogmatics, says the church exists to set up in the world a new sign which is radically dissimilar to the world's own manner and which contradicts it in a way which is full of promise. We are to be a countercultural community. Or as Jesus himself said in the Gospels, John 15, 8, by this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. So here's my invitation this summer. May we pay attention to what God is cultivating in the garden of our soul. And it may be unremarkable, but I think it's countercultural. And it's the good and the beautiful and the kind that there's a longing for. I'm looking forward to taking the journey with you. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, uh, we believe the good news is good. 
And we believe, Lord Jesus, that your work of saving us and redeeming us and setting us apart in sanctification, it's, it's a good work. It's a slow work. But it's what we want to see you do in us. And God, in, in a culture that, that woos us and bends us and shapes us, in so many ways, God, we desire to be shaped and bent and formed by you. God, we want this to be true in us more and more. So God, as we talk about this fruit, Lord, may, may you as the gardener of our soul, Lord Jesus, as the good shepherd of your church, may you see this work. May you cultivate in us. May we participate in what you are doing by your Holy Spirit. And God, I pray that the fruit of your good work in us would be beautiful, would be compelling, would be attractive to a world that is just eating itself, fracturing upon itself. Lord, may the work of Jesus and the work of the Spirit be on full display in us through us, for others too. Lord, in this world where things are so broken, we look to you. Have your way among us, Holy Spirit. May we celebrate the goodness of your work in our souls. I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.